Our sermon text this morning is Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9. Our subject, the wedding of Christ. Let us be glad. I thought that these verses would be very fitting for the new year. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made him herself ready. And to her was granted that ye should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. In my many, many years that I have spent working for youth in this denomination, I made a great discovery about our young people. They like to dream and they like to talk about weddings. I used to work in an office where there were a large number of lady secretaries, and you will be amazed. When there was a wedding, they could talk for days about the bride's bouquet. And then I discovered that uh, they could talk more days about the bride's dress. And then they would talk about the bridal attendants, day after day after day. Well, I also have discovered that mothers love to talk in anticipation of their daughter's weddings. And the poor father, he has a nightmare when he considers the expense. Now, Jesus, our subject today, he was so human that he also liked to talk about weddings. We find him on the Mount of Olives seated with his disciples as heaven was being curtained with the shades of night. He was looking over the crest of the hill and there he could see and the disciples could see an expectant company waiting to join the bridegroom for a marriage procession was about to take place. And I can tell you in my travels that I have seen practically the same sight that the Lord saw that evening and as they were watching what was taking place in this delightful occasion Jesus told a very exciting story he said there were ten virgins all dressed in white each had a lamp each had a flagon of oil each was watching and waiting each fell asleep, each heard the cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. As you consider those details, you would think that they were all the same. But there was a vital difference between these virgins. Five had neglected to fill their flasks with extra oil. You see, they had not expected such a long delay. And being unprepared, they tried to borrow oil from the other virgins, but they were refused. Why? Because each of the other five had already emptied their flagons and trimmed their lamps. 
So the foolish virgins could only go and try to buy some or some more oil. Now these five ladies with their lighted lamps joined the wedding party, entered the house, and it says the door was shut. Some hours later, the five foolish virgins arrived at the door only to receive an unexpected denial. This parable takes on great significance for us who are living just before the second coming of Christ. And I wish today that we would consider very seriously what this means to you and to me. Please notice the following items that have to do with a wedding. There is a courtship. There is the bridegroom's preparations. There are the bride's preparations. There is a date set for the wedding. There are invitations to be sent out. There are guests that must be invited. There are special garments to be worn. There is need of a preacher to perform the ceremony. And there is a great supper, a reception that follows. Now as we talk about this wedding of our Savior, let's begin with what this marriage involves. In Desire of Ages, page 151, in both the Old and the New Testament, the marriage relation is employed to represent the tender and sacred union that exists between Christ and his people. Don't you like that? The mind of Jesus, in the mind of Jesus, gladness of the wedding festivities pointed forward to the rejoicing of that day when he shall bring home his bride to his father's house and the redeemed with the Redeemer shall sit down to the marriage supper of the Lamb. How beautiful. Our lovely Jesus has compared taking us to heaven to live with him as a marriage relationship. But let's start from the beginning, shall we? Let's consider the courtship. You know, when a young man decides to woo for himself a wife, that young man must prove his love. And Christ's love was proved from the very moment that it was needed. We have the picture of Adam and Eve in the garden, disobeying, breaking their relationship, doomed to die. And on the electronic systems of God, instantly the word was flashed to heaven. And what do we find? We find the Lord Jesus leaving the wonderful beautiful city of God, coming down and walking in the Garden of Eden. He wanted to tell Adam and Eve that he loved them. He wanted to let them know that uh, though they had done wrong, he, he had a way whereby he could save them. Isn't that just like our Savior? Can you see him as he is walking through that garden? He's calling, Adam, where art thou? And for the next 4,000 years, we discover the greatest love story that has ever been written. If you are like me, you marvel at our Savior's love as he expressed it in his mercy toward his people. 
his forgiveness, his long-suffering, his abundance of goodness. It was really a love that never once wavered. In John, the third chapter, verse 16, the apostle put it in these words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus loved his people so much that he gave his life for his bride. This reaches beyond comprehension, for Jesus himself declared, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friend. When Paul considered it in Romans, the eighth chapter, he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor anything present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? What a Savior. You see, it was the death of Christ that made the wedding possible. You know, there's many a man in wooing a wife that claims great love for his bride-to-be. But in just a few days or a few years, we find that that love was a sham. But not so with Jesus. He proved his love by dying for the bride. That we who deserve to die for our sins might live and be spiritually married to Christ. Let's pause now for a moment to look at the bridegroom's preparations. Any man that's worth his salt when he considers marriage is immediately faced with a problem. We've got to have a place to live. And so this is why we find Jesus preparing mansions for us in heaven for his bride. You remember he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, of course, before the wedding takes place, there is usually a time when the young man takes his bride-to-be and introduces her to his family, that she may be acquainted and accepted by the family. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ is now doing in heaven for you and for me. He takes us to the Father and presents us as his bride. Hebrews 9, 24. So Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So God has entered the heavenly sanctuary after the cross, and there he takes the sinner, a worthless creature. Some are filled with lies, adultery, rebellion, even murder. It makes you sort of shake. And yet, 
the sinner is so moved by the love of God that he repents. He sees his need and he asks for forgiveness. And he accepts the gift of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, which enables the Savior to wash the sinner in his own precious blood and to create within him a new heart. Then it is that he clothes the individual in his own spotless purity and presents that individual to the Father as one whom he has recreated. Thus God accepts the forgiven sinner as though he had never sinned. What a Savior! Amen? Such love begets love. And so we here on this earth, as we realize what Jesus is doing for us in presenting us to the Father, we're anxious every day to read his love letters, the Word of God. We spend much time in conversation with him through prayer. Our relationship becomes inseparable. Now, in planning for such a wedding, there are invitations that must be sent out. And each of you here today, whether you have realized it or not, you have heard God's invitation or you have read them in your Bible. And if there is one who is not acquainted with the invitations, let me read them to you. All things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Return to me, for I have redeemed thee. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in unto him. Oh, how God has been pleading with us. Some of you he has been pleading not only today, yesterday, last month, but for years. From the time we first took our breath until the day we die, what does it say? He is not willing that any should perish. What a Savior! What love! And of course, there has to be a date, a fixed date for the wedding. Both the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy are very clear about the wedding date. There is no misunderstanding. The wedding date is autumn 1844. Now I see an expression on some of your face of a little bit of wonder. Are you surprised? Didn't you know that the wedding is now in progress in heaven above? Let me read it to you. Great Controversy 427. The proclamation, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. In the summer of 1844, led thousands to expect the immediate advent of the Lord. At that time, the bridegroom came, not to the earth as the people expected, but to the Ancient of Days in heaven, to the marriage, the reception of his kingdom, they that were ready went in with him, and the door was shut. They were not to be present in person at the marriage. 
for it takes place in heaven while they are upon the earth. The followers of Christ are to wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding. Luke 12, 36. And when he will return from the wedding, but we are to understand his work and to follow him by faith as he goes in before God. It is in this sense that they are said to go into the marriage. How plain, how simple. So in 1844, almost 150 years ago, the wedding began. Let's read about what the Bible says. As he sits on his throne, Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. I beheld till thrones were cast down, or the Hebrew says placed. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garments were as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands, that's a billion, isn't it? ministered before him, but there's more, and ten thousands stood before him. The judgment was said, and the books were opened. Oh, what a picture! We're getting ready for the wedding. Verse 13 says, And I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And the wedding takes place. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom and all people. Now it's here on God's throne in the heavenly sanctuary that the wedding takes place. And may I remind you that what God joins together, no one ever puts asunder. Amen? So let's look at these facts. The marriage ceremony is now taking place, Great Controversy 427, in the summer of 1844, at the appointed time the bridegroom came to the marriage. Point number two. The marriage represents, Great Controversy 427, the reception of his kingdom. Point number three. The bridegroom is Christ, Great Controversy 426, as presented in Daniel 7.13, which I have just read, the coming of the Lord to his temple, foretold by Malachi, are descriptions of the same event, represented by the coming of the bridegroom to the marriage described by Christ in the parable of the ten virgins. Point number four. The bride. The bride is the holy city. Revelations 21.2 I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Great Controversy 426 The holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is the capital and the representative of the kingdom is called the bride, the lamb's wife. 
and it adds, clearly the bride represents the holy city. Point number five, the guests. Great Controversy 427. In the Revelation, the people of God are said to be guests at the marriage supper. Revelations 19, verse 9. If guests, they cannot be represented also as the bride. Now let's sort of match these up, shall we? And come to some conclusion. Until the second coming of our Lord, we are the guests at the wedding. For the wedding is now taking place in the heavenly sanctuary. The bride is the new Jerusalem, which is to be married to Christ, which represents the saved who are now on this earth. This marriage of Christ is the new Jerusalem, is to be performed by God Almighty. Christ will immediately come to this earth when the ceremony is completed to gather his saints, the guests. When at that time he will take the guests, the saints, to heaven and with his own right arm, we are told he will open that pearly gate and he will place within the city of God those who are redeemed. And at that time, the saved will become the bride, for they are within the city. In summary, to become the bride, we must first become the guests and put on a wedding garment, which is the righteousness of Christ, freely imputed and freely imparted to all who submit in faith and obedience to his commandments. Now this is in keeping with what Ellen White wrote in Early Writings 251. I saw that while Jesus was in the most holy place, he would be married to the new Jerusalem. And after his work should be accomplished in the holiest, he would descend to the earth in kingly power and take to himself the precious ones who he had patiently waited for his return. Now this brings us in this New Year's Day when we greet everyone with a Happy New Year also with a very serious thought. For in our joy of discussing the wedding of Christ, we discover that we are the guests. And as guests, we must each put on a wedding garment. Matthew twenty-two eleven tells us that God will not take the word of anyone, that he will personally examine every character. Let me read it to you. It tells us of a time when someone thinks that they might be able to get in with the crowd. It says, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, friend, how comest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Oh, let us not think that we somehow will be able to get in without the wedding garment. It's impossible. The angels are going to present us and watch over us, but God himself will make the final check. In Great Controversy 428, it says, Previous to the wedding, the king comes in to see the guests and to see if all are attired in a wedding garment. The spotless robe of character, washed and made white in the precious blood of the Lamb. He who is found wanting is cast out, but all who upon examination are seen to have the wedding garment on are accepted of God and accounted worthy of a share in his kingdom and a seat upon his throne. This work of examination of character or determining who are prepared for the kingdom of God is that of the investigative judgment. The closing work in the sanctuary above. How clear. And you and I know that as Seventh-day Adventists we are the only ones that teach of the sanctuary. And there are those today within the church are, who are trying to teach us that there's no such thing as a sanctuary. They are taking away from us the wedding ceremony. Brothers and sisters, I read in Christ Object Lessons that we must have on the wedding garment. By the wedding garment in the parable is represented the pure, spotless character which Christ's true followers will possess. To the church is given that ye shall be arraigned in fine linen, clean and white, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The fine linen, says the scripture, is the righteousness of saints. It is the righteousness of Christ and his own unblemished character that through faith is imparted to all who receive him as their personal savior. Don't let anyone tell you that sanctification is not a requirement for heaven. It's not an easy thing for the pastor to speak plainly, but let me read it to you. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Will you examine yourself this morning? Will you look at yourself as God looks at you? Have you ever seen a person that as I have just read, I have mentioned it I think once before, but I'm going to do it again. I was in the Cameroons. We had had 12 flat tires that day. We had 30 days of travel. And I decided, although the missionary didn't have the money, that we had to do something to get some new tires. And so I told him to go back to the Cameroons and I would buy the tires. While they were being put on, I took a walk. I'll never forget the Cameroons. It's just a small capital. At that time, I don't think there was more than 10 square blocks. 
I was walking down the street on the sidewalk and I smelled something very, very strange. In fact, I don't recall ever having smelled anything like it in my life. As I rounded the corner, I almost bumped into him. There he was, six feet tall, covered with such filth I have never beheld any human being in such filth. He was covered with sores and open wounds. He had leprosy. I saw immediately that some of his fingers were missing and I looked down at his feet and half of his foot was gone. In fact, it was only a stub. And I saw that he was naked. He didn't even have a loincloth. And then I looked him in the face. It was a horrid thing. For I noticed that he was blind. <clears throat> How did I know? He had no eyes in his sockets. Leprosy had eaten out the eyes. He was blind. He was miserable. He was poor. He was naked. He was wretched. And I immediately thought of the verse that I have just read. When God looks at us, does he see us in that kind of a shape without his righteousness? Brothers and sisters, we need to make sure this new year that we are filled with his righteousness. We cannot ever think of getting to heaven if we have this kind of an experience. Today, may I say it is not enough to believe that Jesus was not just some imposter. It's not enough to believe the Bible is not some cunningly devised fable. You may even today believe that Jesus is the only name under heaven whereby you can be saved. You may have a knowledge of this truth. You may have made a profession. Your name may be in and on the church books. But will you listen to this? Christ Object Lessons 313. Whatever your profession, it amounts to nothing unless Christ is revealed in works of righteousness. Oh, I would plead with you. Up in heaven, the investigative judgment is about finished. The wedding is just about over. If you find yourself today in need of the Savior, listen to this, Christ's Object Lesson 3.12. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged to his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garments of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garments, nor the nakedness, nor the deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. You know, in every wedding in years gone by, for I have conducted many, we used to give an opportunity, if there was anyone in the audience 
before the preacher joined them together, if they knew of any reason why the bride and groom should not be married, that they should stand up and speak. Do you remember that? I do. I well remember how embarrassing it was when somebody spoke. But let me tell you, this is exactly what is happening today in your case. As Jesus presents you before the Father, Satan is objecting. Let me read it to you. Great Controversy 484. While Jesus is pleading for the subjects of his grace, Satan accuses them before God as transgressors. The great deceiver has sought to lead them into skepticism, to cause them to lose confidence in God, to separate them from his love and to break his law. And he points to the record of their lives, to the defects of their character, to the unlikeness to Christ which has dishonored their Redeemer, and to all these sins that he has tempted them to commit. And because of these, he claims them as his subject. But again, what a Savior. We are told in Zechariah 3.2 that Jesus arises and he says, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? What a Savior. He's not going to let the devil do it. And when Jesus finishes his work in the heavenly sanctuary, God will declare the saints to be the bride. For Christ is the bridegroom, and he will unite them in wedlock forever. Revelations 22.1 He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. This brings us face to face with the closing hours of the heavenly sanctuary when the day of atonement comes to an end. What is the day of atonement? It is the time at one meant with God. Therefore, this is no time in 1994 for spiritual adultery. There can be no mixing of the world with godliness. This must be a day, a year, when we afflict our souls in solemn humiliation, a time to pray, yes, a time to fast. A time to examine ourselves in clear heart searching. For either we will be blotted out or our sins will be blotted out. When will, he, when will we somehow awaken to God's pleadings? In Acts 3.19 he said, Repent ye therefore, be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Early writings again, 280. Every case has been decided for life or death. 
while Jesus has been ministering in the sanctuary. Don't let anyone tell you that you can sin till Jesus comes. The judgment has been going on for the righteous dead and then for the righteous living. Christ has received his kingdom, having made the atonement for his people and blotted out their sins. The subjects of the kingdom are made up. The marriage of the Lamb was consummated. And the kingdom and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven was given to Jesus. And so, friend, today, this is the time for us to get rid of our sins. Don't put it off. In Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and then notice these words, Unto him, unto them that look for him, shall he appear the second time, and then it says, without sin. Now you can read that verse either way you want this morning. You can look at it, that when Jesus comes, he doesn't, he's free of sin. Why? Because he has placed all your sins, which he had forgiven, he's placed them on the devil. Never again to forgive another sin or to take another sin upon himself. Or you can read it this way. When he comes, he's going to come only for those who are without sin. Those who have overcome. In early writings, page 71, I saw that many were neglecting the preparation so needful and were looking to the time of refreshing and the latter rain to fit them to stand in the day of the Lord and to live in his sight. Oh, how many I saw in the time of trouble without a shelter. They had neglected the needful preparation. I would plead to you that each day this year we determine by God's grace as we are brought face to face with our shortcomings, if you're asking God to do it, that you determine that this will be a year of daily victories, that you will become more and more like Christ, I read there will be no time then to do or to, for the mediator to plead our case before the Father. Before this time, the awful solemn declaration has gone forth, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. I saw that none could share the refreshing unless they obtained the victory over every besetment. Now I trust that my sermon which I felt would be a joyous experience. You will not be discouraged as you think of things that need to be overcome in your life. Rather, I trust that this new year, you will look at it in glorious hope, for you have all heaven ready to help you. Jesus himself, not only has he died for you, but he stands ready to cover you with his righteousness. He stands ready to forgive you. Praise his name. And now he is ready to...
to place his robe of righteousness upon you. And the Holy Spirit is ready to give you the omnipotent power of the Almighty that will make it possible for you to have victory over every temptation of Satan. What a year this can be if you'll take hold of his power. And every angel in heaven is at your command to guide you, to encourage you, to protect you. And then God has given to us the glorious spirit of prophecy that helps us so that when we read the Bible and we have any question, we know exactly what it means. We have the truth. Oh, what a blessed hope. Soon, soon, very soon, there will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. As I heard this morning of one dear sister, she's tired of life, but she's looking for heaven, homesick for heaven. And if this can only be our desire, brothers and sisters, God can do great things for us. We are the bride. We are to have eternal life in Jesus Christ now and forevermore. Let Jesus this year robe you daily in his robes of righteousness. What did he say? Ask, and ye shall receive. May God help us to become one with Christ this year. Let us pray. Loving Father, in the joys, the anticipation of that glorious day when we step within the city as the bride, beholding the mansions prepared for us, the tree of life, the supper table, the joys, that of eternal life. Oh God, help us today not to be carried away this year with the temptations of Satan, but help us somehow to take hold of thy keeping power and to become more and more like thee. This is our prayer this year. Amen.